Our God in heaven, we do indeed trust that you are with us right now. I pray, God, that you would keep working in our lives to bring transformation and comfort and encouragement to remind us of your love and remind us of who you are. Uh, we need you in every way, and we pray that you would um, remind us of who we are in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So we have uh, finally wrapped up our series of Philippians. There's no Philippians 5 for us to turn to today. And so we're going to start a new series for the next seven weeks called Sacred Space that we're going to talk about. And I kind of was start thinking about this, that we need a theology of space, especially for a church that's never owned a building and owned a space, not recognizing both the gift and the temptation that comes with that. I was just thinking about what does it mean for a space to be sacred, to be the place where heaven and earth overlap. And so I want to spend the next seven weeks to kind of do teach about the theology of space through the grand story of Scripture, the grand story that we're living in. And we live in a culture that keeps feeding us shrinking stories that are fear-driven, that promote tribalism, that promote an us versus them, that give us a sense that we need to be in control and of, of our own story. And they're small stories, and they're stories that are not life-giving. They're stories that are destructive. We need a better story, and praise God that we have one. We are in a better story. And so I want to talk about the grand story of God, and as we do so, we're going to follow through and see where God is in it. That though God is omnipresent, he's in a sense everywhere, and that he has eyes on everything, the Bible describes a theology of space in which God's presence manifests uniquely throughout creation. That there are spaces in creation where God's presence is more, is different. He's there in a more animating, life-giving way than where he is everywhere else. And so we're going to follow through that, but to, 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 get, to kind of spoil the story for you and constantly remind you of this, is that your body is that temple, is that sacred space where God dwells. Not in this building, not on that street out there, not in some home somewhere. It's in your body. He is in your body at all times. He's in the body of a Christian person when they get baptized, and his, his spirit is giving unique life and presence there that he's not anywhere else in physical creation. But how did we get there? How did we move from creation to that point? That's what we're going to talk about. And so we're going to start at the very beginning with a creation story in Genesis 1 and 2. And now it's hard to even jump into this creation story, honestly, because it's quite explosive. In our culture, we have a whole community from the scientific community of, of people that aren't believers that use what we've learned from science to try to disprove what's in Genesis 1 and 2 on the basis of science. And then we have in response to that very well-meaning Christians who, uh, are, who have Bible in hand, who know their, their book, chapter, and verse of all things, and want to argue with scientists on their terms. And it's an inferno, and I'm trying to not get into the middle of that inferno. And conveniently, I don't have to, because science is asking the question of when and how. They're looking at material processes, and they're asking questions of how old this earth is, how is it formed materially, and those are the main questions they can ask, and they are okay at putting forward theories and models to answer those questions. Those are not the questions the Bible is trying to answer. The Bible is not even commenting on those questions. So conveniently, we're allowed to let science do its thing and celebrate whatever comes from it, but nothing that comes from it can comment on 
what the Bible is trying to do in the origin story. So in the origin story, instead of, in the creation story, instead of being focused on the questions of when it was made and how materially things came together, the Bible is trying to answer the questions of who made it and for whom and why. So these are purpose questions, worldview questions of what kind of world we're living in and who we are living in that world. These are questions that science can't access. Science is good at evaluating what is materially available, ready to be able to be looked at and observed and touched. They cannot face beyond that to describe and and talk about spiritual things. And so that's what the Bible answers, those questions of who made it and for what purpose. And so we're going to kind of hit a few verses of, of Genesis 1 and 2 to describe that. So the first thing I want to talk about is that creation was designed by God to be sacred space where he dwells. That the creation story tells a story of creation being a temple for God. And it is made by God. So you see that in the beginning in Genesis 1-1, when God created the heavens and the earth, and then all the first chapters, all these things God did. God said, God saw, God called, God made, God separated. And we become very clear right up front that the story we're living in is about God. He's the protagonist. He's the main hero. He's the author. He's the maker. And there's only one. And so this creation story can kind of mirror or reflect some other competing creation stories that were known in the ancient world. And the difference is, instead of having multiple gods that create accidentally from a place of violence and disruption, we have one God who's purposeful, who's coming from a place of decisive stability, who's intentional, and who is doing all the work himself. And so he's giving functions to everything. He's putting things where they go. He's speaking words. He's separating things out. He's naming things, and he's giving it all functionality, and it's just one God doing it. And so for starters, we get to realize that our story matters deeply. It's deeply significant, but it's significant insofar as we see ourselves into God's story. This is really ultimately about God setting up creation, and humans have a very important role that I'll get to, but it starts out focused on God. Go to my next slide, brother. And so what's he doing as he's making these things, as he's doing all these functions? So it starts with, in verse 2, that in the earth was formless and void, is a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while the Spirit of God swept over the face of the waters. And so this is pulling from uh, imagery in the ancient Near East that was associated with disorder or non-order. The seas were kind of a chaotic thing that people would be fearful of, and a formless void with no functionality, nothing in its proper place, and God is kind of hovering over. So you look at where his spirit is, it's kind of hovering over, watching and looking things back. And then you see that God goes through and puts everything where he wants it in its place. And then it says, and God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. That God likes what he made that he gave order where there wasn't any order. He gave functionality where there was non-functionality. He gave stability where there was instability. He gave beauty when there was nothing, all by his language. He spoke it into existence and made it so, and he calls it good. 
Again, this is in contrast to the ancient Near Eastern cultures and other ways in which the Enuma Elish is, a, is another creation story from Babylon that basically believed that there was multiple gods that were at war, and what we have in creation is basically the dismembered corpses of the gods that were defeated. So it was accidental, and it conveys that the world we're living in is a world of brutality, of destruction, of disorder, and of death. But instead, here again, we have one God who's purposeful, who's intentional, who's beautiful, and he infuses material creation with all that. This speaks against this notion that we are in a, a, a world of disorder and of chaos. It speaks against this notion that we have a competing vision between spiritual things that are good and material things that are bad or just tolerable. No, he infuses that material world with goodness and with significance and with value, and he calls it good. But then what we get to is that he's ultimately setting this up as a temple, that the whole cosmos, the whole universe is seen as his temple. Let's read from Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Oh, my goodness, I forgot to record this sermon. They're going to get a half sermon for the recording. Brennan, he's on it. Man, that's my dude right there. Ah, oh, it's so nice not to think about it, man. <laughs> I was in the middle of talking like, ooh, how am I going to start recording that sermon now? My man. Thank you, my brother. So Genesis 2, verses 1 and 3, says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day of all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done. In creation. So why does God need to rest? Does he get tired? God didn't get tired. So what's he need to rest from? What's he rested for? When we talk about rest, this is the linchpin of the creation narrative and emphasizes what we're actually talking about here. Rest in the ancient world for, for gods was what they did in a temple. They would fill the temple with their presence and they would rest from that place. But it's not a rest from work, like we're trying to kick our feet up and do some self-care and watch some Netflix and eat my favorite food and just not do anything. When a god rests in a temple, it's from that temple that they essentially work. It's like rest from obstacles and instability to fulfill their work of running the world. And so when God calls creation good and then kicks his feet up in it and rests, he's saying this whole world was designed to be a temple for him. When I say temple, I don't mean a building where people gather to worship. In the Old Testament, a temple was seen as where heaven and earth overlap, where God's space and material space come together and overlap. And, and originally, the purpose of creation was itself to be a whole temple. And later, imagery of the temple would describe that Josephus is a historian, a Jewish historian in the first century, and he was describing the tabernacle, and he said every one of these things that are in, this, every one of these objects in the tabernacle are meant to be, be a symbolic of the universe. And so the universe is designed to be a temple for God to rest. The number seven is also a, 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 a word that is affiliated with with temple construction accounts and temple inauguration accounts, that it communicates that something is complete, is perfect, and that God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. These are words of, of making something holy, of consecrating it and preparing it all 
for his presence to be felt in it. And not to mention, we have imagery of, of gardens adjoining sacred space all throughout the Bible. And in Ezekiel, the Garden of even Eden is even referred to as the Garden of God because it's where God walked along the path and in the garden. He filled that space. And in Genesis 2, we see rivers flowing out from from the Garden of Eden, which again, from Ezekiel 47, is imagery that we have of waters flowing from the temple. All of these imagery that are there are there for a reason to communicate that the Garden of Eden is not just some green space. It is meant to be sacred space where God dwells. God's presence is the beginning and end of creation. It is the purpose of it. Creation was made to make room for God's presence to dwell and to rest. He made it as a cosmic temple. And so we see that creation exists to house God. And he called it beautiful and functional and good and perfect for him to dwell. And we see in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 6, that heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain God. The whole earth is filled with his glory. God's presence is here. And so from that place of rest, though, he's not just chilling out, he's running it. So what's he do on day 8, day 9, day 10? He's continually creating and sustaining for creation to be a place to house his presence. And so the question is, what does that mean for us now, living in his story in sacred space? We see that we have a special role, too. That creation story doesn't actually climax in God finding rest in the temple, it climaxes in the creation of human beings. Because it was created to house God, but for us. This is really unique. In the other creation accounts, we see that, that gods are making creation for them. And they are insatiable. They have crazy appetites. They are wildly greedy. They are fickle. They are needy. And they don't get enough. And so they are made, the creation is made for them, and human beings function as those God's slaves. They feed them, they give them what they need in hopes that they would get protected. But we know that our God has no needs. He has everything he could ever need, and so he creates out of an abundance and longs for his presence to be filled. And so he allows then creation to be made for human beings. It's centered around us to enjoy and experience his life-giving presence, and he gives us a special role in it as God's image bearers. So let me read them from Genesis 1, 26-27 of our special role here. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So we have this weighty role as God's image bearers. And I'm going to describe some of that later on, but for starters... We have a unique identity in God that is just bestowed upon us. It's not associated with any functions we have about our self-awareness or intellectual capacity. It's just as human beings, you carry his image and are in a unique relationship with him and have that as a unique identity of peace. And yet, you, can, you have that intention, the weightiness of that identity and that role and what we're coming up, our responsibility, with the fact that we are but dust. Chapter 2, verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground 
and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you see that we have this tension, and you know it. You know this tension in your bones. You may not have language for it all the time, but you know it in your bones. Where your life carries a weight. You have eternal capacity in your mind to imagine things beyond just what you can see and feel around you. A capacity that's much higher than animals to be able to grasp and see beyond what's right in front of you and, and your just base appetites and instincts. But you are also frail, and you know that. You know you're fragile. You got masks on because you live in a frail world. And people are trying to stop a pandemic and struggling to do so because we know our fragility. And that's on purpose, that you are but dust, which is just language to emphasize our mortality, that we are inherently on purpose, very good, but needy, because we're meant to depend on the presence of God. And so he gives in this narrative symbols of the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil to say that God is the source of all life that could give life to our mortal bones. He can take what is but dust and give us life. And also he gives us the wisdom that we would need as dust. And so we have this weighty role as God's image bearers, but literally cannot do it without depending on the life-giving presence that's meant to fill the whole world and the whole universe. And so we carry that weight in tension. And we'll talk next week of the sin that naturally arises from being in that tension of feeling the eternal weight of our role as human beings in conflict with the fact that we know deep down we are frail. And so we wish to do something about that. When what we're actually formed and called to do is to depend on God for it to seek and chase after and receive and dwell in and soak in his presence in order to be able to do what is literally impossible otherwise. Because we are but dust. If God had not breathed life into this dust, we would not have such a meaningful role. And so we are built to depend on him. But to do what? God's image bearers has two, kind of a two-role image there that I want to talk about. First, I want to talk about that we are, as image bearers, we function as co-rulers. And so in verse 128, he says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So we are that bold line that's set at an angle. We are the angled mirror of creation, that we as God's co, as God's image bearers are like co-rulers with him. So in ancient world, God's, or kings would conquer land and would place literally their image all over places that they ruled. They would put coins, they would put paintings, they would put statues of themselves in territories where they were supposed to reign in order to reflect that when they are physically not able to be seen there, people could see their images and know that they are ruling that land. That's who we are in creation on behalf of God. God is king over the whole universe, and he has made us his vice regents, and it's our role to reflect God's creative and loving and purposeful rule in every territory where we would go. 
And so we are bringing God's rule down from heaven and manifesting it around us through his presence. His presence is the means by which we get to have this role. And so you imagine all the creativity, all the innovation, all the learning that human beings are involved in, and we need to broaden our minds out to imagine all that this would involve. The work of God is not just read your Bible, pray, go to church, and then I go about do my normal life. All the creative labors that you're engaged in, the relationships, business stuff, medicine, science, history, education, learning, is a reflection of us bringing and mediating God's presence into the world, ruling on his behalf. And this subduing and ruling is not by means of violence or manipulation or control or taking it upon ourselves to dominate for our purposes. We get to fulfill this purpose by going out from him to reflect his creative, loving rule through our humble dependence on his mercy, on his wisdom, and on him for life and guidance in that. So we are this angle mirror that brings God's rule down from heaven and through horizontally in, our, in the world. We get to have that role, but as dust, we better depend on God for it or all hell breaks loose as we know. And we'll talk about that next week. But also as image bearers, what else do we do? We function as God's priests. And this should not be surprising to us. We see language of royalty, kingdom, and priests all throughout the Bible. In Exodus 19, God's reestablishing a new covenant with his people, and he says, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. In 1 Peter, when, what does Peter use to describe the church? He calls us a royal priesthood to, to connote that we are both kings and queens bringing rule to the world around us, and priests on behalf of creation, bringing creation's praises, gathering them up, and giving creative and imaginative expression and verbal expression of those praises back to God. And so we see this language here that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And if you don't know Hebrew, like me, man, I don't really know Hebrew. Man, I took some Hebrew classes. I distinctly remember taking a four-hour final in Hebrew and thinking, when I walk out of here, this is probably the last time I'm ever going to read this. I did not have good Hebrew teachers. I didn't know my stuff. And I was like, mm, I don't really know it. But conveniently, I can read other people who do know Hebrew. And what they tell me is that this, this language of tilling and keeping it is not just agrarian language of like they're cutting the grass and growing some crops and stuff. This is language associated with what priests do to guard and keep sacred space sacred, to reflect what the deity, what God would want in his sacred space. And so he's saying that Adam and Eve and through them all human beings have as image bearers this role as his priests. And that's also when they would make a temple, people would, the pagan gods or pagan uh, religious people would put an image, like an idol, in that temple to reflect the God that they worshiped. And we know from our Old Testament that God would never allow that because we are the image bearer. He doesn't need an idol in there because our existence reflects that we are indeed the priests for this kind of God. And so then human beings, not only are we bringing as God's co-rulers his creative and beautiful rule down to earth, we're also gathering up the needs and the praises of creation around us and of people we're around and bringing those to God as his priests. We, our function is so weighty, it feels like, it's almost stressful. Like, I'm thinking about this all week and thinking, 
that sounds like a lot. I would rather just kind of hang out a little bit and not have to do something so significant. But we can't get out of it. As human beings, it's like we're called to mediate God's presence in the world. And it gives us a sense of belonging with other human beings in this task. It gives us a sense of significance, which you know we all fight for, some sense of calling. And it broadens that out to let that include so many more categories than just going to church and reading our Bibles. We can be being this kingdom of priests, this royal priesthood, this angle mirror everywhere we go, because the Spirit of God eventually lands inside our physical bodies. And we're going to get to there in like week six or so. But for now, we remember that that's actually the function that human beings get to have, and yet if we don't do it God's way, by God's means, with his power, with his wisdom, with his life, from a place of humble dependence, all hell breaks loose. That's Genesis 3 through 11 of everything going haywire because they wanted to be rulers and priests of themselves and not of this creative, good, purposeful God. And so what? Like, Man, that's a big old story, and that's neat and all, and Babylon, that's cool, but what does that mean for me? And so for us, we see the value of both Sabbath rest and vocation in this text, that, that when we rest, we do indeed go hands off. And it's in order to reflect the fact that this is not our world. We're not here to control, to manipulate. And so we live a life that is filled with just production or stimulation that has no room for rest, that God is doing the work. We're going to miss out on this. I feel convicted about this myself this week, that I feel like my whole life is either like reading and consuming information and or being productive, not leaving enough space to remember This is God's world filling the space with his presence and that he's running it. He gives me freedom to sleep and to rest and to turn off and to enjoy and to watch and to celebrate and to remember and to stop, to cease striving and be still and know in our bones that he's the Lord. And you know it by stopping. And so that discipline is infused in the creation narrative, not necessarily to be legalistic with like take a day here to do it, but in the sense of, we, uh, of building a life that allows for a sense of quiet. And yet, it's not rest to be nothing. Resting is not the last thing. It's resting towards then reengaging in any vocation. I want you to broaden your minds out of the creativity and the opportunity that you have in every conversation, every decision you make, every area of creation, starting with just your body that you have authority over to decide anything about it is a chance to both reflect God's creative and loving rule through you to the world around you and to gather up the praises and needs of anything around you and, and going in intercession to God on their behalf that broaden out all the areas that that could count towards, that we get to do. And so we have this rhythm built into creation of rest and of work in order to reflect our value of each other and of the world. And so I want to close then with the climax of the story we're going to. Because we already know the end. We know that all hell is going to break loose and that God's going to have to do something to get creation right. And we see in the cross this reminder of both our tremendous value and our utter frailty. Right out the gate in creation on page one, we are told that we carry this weight as God's image bearers. That's a weight that's overwhelmingly uplifting. You are that special. 
Let it, let it blow your mind up and let it like, suffice your ego, get your ego going because you are that special that you are God's image and yet you're immediately brought right down to be reminded that you are but dust. There's equally in the same narrative both an extreme value in pumping you up and also a humbling moment. And the cross is the same way. That on the one hand, you are so special, you are so valuable, you are so significant that God sees you as you are and says, I'm glad to die for you. And on the other hand, it holds up a mirror to our weakness, to our failure, to our sin, to our frailty, to our rebellion, and says that God had to die for us because we had no other option. It is both, on the one hand, uplifting by reminding us how overwhelmingly loved we are, and at the same time, humbling to remind us that we are but dust, and to dust we shall return. We are utterly dependent on God with no recourse. You have no other option to go to. No collaboration, no project, no way to kind of design it all out, no other resources or money to pull towards. You are utterly dependent, but praise God that he sees you in your dependence and responds with love and with embrace. That is the climax of our story, and it is on the one hand fully filling us up to give us everything we need and supplying us with all we need for self-worth, and at the same time humbling us to remember that we only have that because God has breathed it into us and spoken it over to us and called the whole thing very good. Let's pray.